30 seconds and counting. Aye. Astronauts reported Aye. feels good. T minus 25 seconds. Aye. Uh. Five-fold, nothing to a giant, waited my turn, call it perfect time and trust the most high, got the stars aligning, I was tapped in, I've been strategizing, dreams coming true, I've been fantasizing while you criticize, pay attention to the signs, symbolize, feel like a legend, they go wide the lies, Hey, I'm a hero of my cape, independent leader made a way, I'm the people's voice, hip hip parade, stuck to my pace, the turtle win the race, the trophies on trophies, views from the townscape, Change is great, pray, then I had to skate. God told me time to go elevate. Chosen child, I'm the champ now, not a featherweight. Man, I'm so blessed, I just meditate. Peace of mind, that's what you get when you out the way. By any means, I just listen what Malcolm say. Studied the game, I'm a student, learned every day. Stacking my bucks and I'm not talking Tampa Bay. Running the game, feel like first in the relay. Hand me my medal, took it to new levels. All gas on the pedal, not standing, cause settle, nah. Yeah. Hey, we see you very soon. Guess what I'm here to do? Could inspire you. We headed to the moon. Look, yeah, I'm living proof. About to bless off like zoo. We about to take the roof. We have a lift We headed to hey, the moon. This for the culture. Stacking our beats like it's Folgers. We on the move. We in motion. I believe I got a notion. Nothing but love. That's devotion. Budgets don't cost me. I'm with the commotion. I can be Batman. to turn to the Joker. Debo with the loafers. I'm trying to stay focused. I see it. I want it. That's hocus and pocus. And while I solid in my hands. But I give it to Allah. He blessed me with more and more overflow. Tada. I know I'm the best. I don't need your fake shout outs. I'm putting the work like an OVO night out of realist. You see it. I know that you notice i keep it 100 never sugar-coated i'm locked and i'm loaded pockets getting bloated the goat on the mic you dealt with who they voted yeah yeah hey we see you very soon this what i'm here to do could inspire you we headed to the moon look yeah i'm living proof about to bless off like zoo we about to take the roof we have a lift off we headed to the moon Hello and welcome to Inspired Earth. I hope that you guys are having a great week. Uh, I have a topic that I've been wanting to tackle for a long time. This is one that's been on the back burner for too long. So I'm just going to knock it out and get it out of the way. I'm sure that you guys are going to enjoy it no less. Because uh, this is a big one and it's fun. I mean, uh, well, it's it, you'll see what I mean by it's fun at the end. But uh, it, we are talking about a heavy subject and we will end on a positive note though and we're going to be talking about ocean acidification which uh, according to Newsweek says ocean acidification set to triple by 2100 and that ocean acidification of the earth's oceans is expected to triple by 2100 and could lead to major impacts on biodiversity across U.S. coastlines. With climbing atmospheric CO2, huge amounts of this gas are absorbed by the oceans, dissolving to form carbonic acid, making the waters more and more acidic. This affects a huge number of marine animals and plants alike, but its impact on fleshy seaweeds around the coast may have a knock-on effect across the food web and make our beaches much less pleasant, according to a new study published by journal Current Biology. We found evidence that ocean acidification could make seaweeds more vulnerable to physical damage, which could come from storms or grazing animals. 
If this vulnerability means that the amount of seaweed decreases significantly, it could have effects on the entire coastline. Seaweeds form the base of the near-shore food web. They provide food and shelter to many small organisms, which are in turn food for larger species. This makes the actual impact on any given place very hard to predict, but it could have negative effects on things like commercial fishing. By reducing the food available for the fish stock, water quality, seaweeds help to filter water by absorbing nutrients, and or tourism because a beach with murky, smelly water and no fish is less appealing to tourists than a beach with clear, clean water and lots of fish. But what this study shows is that even though the increase in carbon dioxide increases photosynthesis and growth, it also weakened the plants and their leaves, called thalli, which broke off, Lindbergh said. Bladderwack is known as an important habitat for numerous sea creatures, from worms to clams to fishes and everything in between. Thus, the breakup of plants would mean that the habitat is degraded, and degradation might also permit other algal species with different properties to come in and take over. A good example of that is in the Baltic Sea, where eutrophification degraded bladderwack and filament filamentous algae took over. From both ecological and human aesthetic perspectives, this very much degraded coastal ecosystems in much of the Baltic. The acidification of the oceans will only increase as we continue to release more carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. As more carbon dioxide is released into the atmosphere around the world, about one-third of that carbon dioxide makes its way into the ocean through natural processes. Once it's in the ocean, the carbon dioxide reacts to form carbonic acid, can be said. This also is a natural process, but because the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is increasing, so too is the amount of carbonic acid in the ocean, which drives the pH acidity changes that we have already begun seeing today. And that was from Newsweek, and we're going to move on to... So you see the, um, before we move on, you can, you see the issue here that, uh, it's basically going to be like a cascading effect, uh, that once the bottom of the food chain begins to die, that will just roll over and cascade from smaller to larger organisms. And we can intervene in this process. It doesn't have to just roll out in front of us and we look on like a fireworks show or something, like we can actually go in there and do something because we have brains and we have hands and there's like seven or eight billion of us. We can all do something, uh, even if it's just talking about it and raising awareness. And that's what we're going to be doing right now that we have technologies and stuff. This is just uh, like two basic examples that I'm going to give of things that we can do to intervene and reverse this process that's going on and it's called carbon capture technology which has been around for years but they primarily focus on capturing co2 from pollution sites such as coal and steel plant chimneys before it enters the atmosphere on a larger scale we'll need complicated machines and sophisticated technology but the road ahead is riddled with challenges however Leahy university pennsylvania researchers have identified a material 
that could be a game changer in the direct air capture industry. Arupsen Gupta at Lehigh University and his colleagues developed a new absorbent material called a sorbent that can pull more CO2 from the air than existing materials. According to researchers, modifying amine solvents with a copper solution increased the carbon capture potential of direct atmospheric carbon capture by two to three times. Uh, it says, this material can be produced at very high capacity very rapidly, substantially reducing the cost of DAC. The proposal is elegant and clever chemistry. Now comes the exciting part. This captured CO2 can be converted into sodium bicarbonate or baking soda thanks to seawater. The team said this will be stored in the ocean as it is an infinite, sea, infinite sink of carp, captured carbon. So it's an infinite sink for captured carbon. As sodium bicarbonate is alkali, it could reverse the ocean acidification that naturally takes place and pose no ecological harm. Higher alkalinity also means more biological activity. That means more CO2 sequestration. He said DAC plants utilizing the sorbent could eventually be installed offshore. The proposal is elegant and clever chemistry. The ability to store directly into seawater is also powerful because the very deep ocean has an immense capacity for accessible CO2 storage, lasting hundreds to thousands of years. Uh, Stewart from the University of Edinburgh in the UK. However, more research must be done to clearly understand how the material performs on a larger and industrial scale after absorbing and releasing CO2 hundreds of times. I've argued consistently that the only way this will ever happen at the scale it needs to happen is if it's made a licensing condition to continue to sell fossil fuels. As soon as it happens, it will happen on a scale that's currently unimaginable. That's true. Anybody that's like burning fossil fuels at this point, why you wouldn't be capturing that carbon and putting it into the CO2 or the ocean at that point? Uh, like, what are you even doing? That should absolutely be mandatory that we be capturing all the CO2. Um, and here we have the same story from CNN and we'll see if it has anything extra that it didn't add. And on the CNN article, one of the things it mentioned was, as far as the carbon sink, it says, nature does this. Forests and oceans, for example, are valuable carbon sinks, but not quickly enough to keep pace with the amounts humans are producing. So we had to turn to, te turn to technology. And most carbon capture pulls directly from the coal or cement plants, like it said, but this is involving carbon pollution directly out of the atmosphere and storing it and injecting it into the ground is what they've done in the past but uh the problem with direct air capture is while carbon dioxide may be very potent at planet heat at planet heating gas its concentrations are very small making it up about 0.04 percent of the air this means removing it directly from the air is challenging it's a significant hurdle even the biggest facilities can only remove relatively small amounts and it costs several hundred dollars to remove each ton of carbon. 
Climb's direct air removal project in Iceland is the largest facility, according to the company, and can capture 4,000 tons of carbon dioxide a year. That's equivalent to the carbon capture of about 800 cars over the year. And this is a new technique laid out in the study to help tackle the problems that uh, we mentioned earlier. The team have used copper to modify absorbent material used in direct air capture, which they had talked about that before. And then down towards the bottom, it says that right now disposing of large tonnages of sodium bicarbonate would be legally defined as dumping, even if it would be helpful. And so they're going to have to like make it to where this would be legal. But it also says that you have to do a full ecotoxic study. You don't know what's going on, even at small concentrations, which I mean, I think that we have done some studies, but I would want to have some studies for sure. But I mean, I think that this could absolutely work. More studies is fine. That's fine. Some study, some scientists have expressed concerns that a focus on technology to remove carbon pollution from the air or factories could distract from policies to reduce fossil fossil fuel burning in general, or it could give polluters license to carry on polluting. More research will be needed to understand how the method works at scale, but it's promising and the world needs a lot of this type of new discoveries. This is the time to go forward and do something in maybe two or three different places around the world, let other people get involved, find faults, improve it, and then proceed accordingly. Crazy how whenever you discover something or invent something, it's all about just disseminating it to everybody, sending it to everybody as fast as possible, making it democratic, open source, everybody look at it. That's the way it should be with technologies. Uh, and it shouldn't just be locked up and then we pay for it the rest of our lives with our taxes for it to be locked away and and held up like a like a serial killer or something where you know we treat our like best technologies like we treat serial killers i literally just realized that as i'm like speaking it like that's insane we lock away everything that could solve our problems and uh yeah but here we have somebody that's putting it out there and is public access just sending it to everybody and uh and i'm also there with that to send it out to everybody the whole world so that they can listen and learn and try to improve upon it and find faults and see if it's gonna really help you know like that one guy the scientists were saying that we needed more studies to make sure it's safe absolutely let's get on it but the clock is ticking so let's get on it <laughs> All right, so before we go on, I just wanted to mention this as just food for thought. Um, I had Googled the efficiency rate for artificial photosynthesis, and it said that it was at 22.4% efficiency of converting carbon dioxide to oxygen, I believe is what that's saying. And I'm not a scientist, so I can't say for sure with authority. That's just what I had read, I think. But right here, it says in a different article that um, this is totally different, not talking about the oceans at all. And this is February 5th, 2024. They're actually talking about colonizing Mars and terraforming Mars. And how do you turn a Martian atmosphere that's at 96% carbon dioxide 
to make it breathable. And they're saying working on artificial photosynthesis. So if we could create artificial leaves or artificial photosynthesis, we could fix our own atmosphere really easily. Uh, but that's artificially, right? But here we have biological solutions, um, which might not be at 22% efficiency, but they all work. And we don't even know totally how they work. We'll get to that at the end. But we know that it works. The math leads the way on that. And it says that uh, the first report uh, this April recommended that scientists and manager managers push forward such strategies to suck CO2 out of the water. The idea is smaller, gentler cousin to grander schemes of geoengineering. There have been proposals to soak up the ocean's excess acid by throwing iron, limestone, olivine into the water, boosting plankton growth, adding to building block shells, building blocks for shells, or chemically absorbing CO2. But yeah, that doesn't sound that great. The general response to such plans usually range from head-shaking disbelief or widespread concern about ecological side effects of dumping metals and mining and distributing the rocks, unpredictable shifts in food webs, and it doesn't sound that great of an idea. However, one study said that seagrass meadows could provide corals about an 18% growth in boost in growth, 18% boost in growth. On the local scale, however, lower cost, lower risk ecological restoration might have a dual benefit of giving threatened sea creatures both a better place to live and a refuge from the ocean acid. In 2012, Monzalo showed that Florida inshore's waters, including where Cheeky Rocks sits, are packed with dissolving aragonite, 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 I think, the material that corals need to grow. Acids in the water decrease the aragonite saturation value if it gets below one. Corals and shells start to dissolve. In pre-industrial times, these inshore waters typically had a saturation of 4.6. Today, most reefs in Florida and the Caribbean have been ecked down to 3.8. But Florida's inshore waters have a happy 4.7. This is a huge difference. The reason is the blankets of seagrass growing in Florida's inshore waters, like turtle grasses and manatee grasses that suck up CO2 as they photosynthesize, particularly in the spring. Another study the same year showed the effect in tropical Indo-Pacific seagrasses, seagrass meadows there have a potential to increase aragonite saturation by up to 2.9 units and the pH by 0.38. That should give corals about an 18% boost in growth, making seagrass a potential tool for marine park managers. The potential is huge. Plants in the ocean from seagrass to plankton add up to just 0.05% of the plant biomass on land but are so per pervasive and efficient at sucking up carbon that they cycle through roughly the same amount of carbon every day as all the land-based ba plants. That's crazy. I have to reread that. Plants in the ocean from seagrass to plankton add up to just 0.05% of the plant biomass on land. 
but are so pervasive and efficient at sucking up carbon that they cycle through roughly the same amount of carbon every day as all the land-based plants. Yet seagrass ecosystems are being wiped out, thanks to everything from pandemic diseases to water pollution and coastal construction projects. The rate of loss has skyrocketed from less than 1% of global seagrass coverage per year in the 1970s to 7% annually in the 2000s, making seagrass one of the planet's most threatened ecosystems. Efforts to restore or farm such plants could have a host of benefits, including soaking up atmospheric carbon. Researchers will soon start the first large-scale large scale project to plant and grow kelp to suck up CO2. It's hard to compete with Asian kelp suppliers, but local kelp could be dried and used as food or fertilizer, adding a layer of economic diversity to a struggling coastal economy. There's a lot of potential for shellfish, aquaculture, but people are really hesitant because of the acidification. So they're scared to go into business for the shellfish because they're watching them die. Pairing up with seaweeds might be the trick to buy new businesses a bit of insurance against future conditions. It says that they are putting down $1.5 million in the uh, restoration fund from Paul G. Allen Ocean Challenge in April 2015 to investigate the potential for sugar kelp to reduce acidity in local waters where the pH can hit 7.8. Plans call for starting farming of an acre of kelp this October. That's a lot. Ocean waters can be buffed against ocean acids by non-living material too. Instead of soaking up carbon dioxide, the strategy here is to add more carbonate to the water, which is basically what we were just talking about with the carbon dioxide, or I mean the uh, baking soda, uh, by adding carbonate to the water. That shifts the ar aragonite saturation point and again makes it easier for shells to grow. Nearly every estuary that once had a thriving oyster industry hosts an effort to put old shells back into the water. Most, if not all of these projects are focused on giving the oysters or shells or shellfish something to grow on. Their babies prefer to sit on piles of old shells rather than being buried or choked by the mud. In fact, these shells help to buffer the water acidity as an added bonus. That's right, because the shells are carbonate, so there would be like a little layer, like water uh, and oil separates the higher acidity would, water would separate from the lower acidity water. The Chesapeake Bay, he notes, has seen the largest oyster reef restoration effort to date and possibly the largest unintentional ocean acidification buffering experiment. About 196 billion, or excuse me, million with an M, not, not a B, 196 million bushels of dredged oyster shells were put back into the Chesapeake Bay from 1960 until 2006. Before the project, coordinators ran low on shells. They're still about 100 million bushels short of where the Chesapeake ecology would have been had oysters not been extracted for centuries. And the effects on the bay's complex water chemistry have so far been hard to track. But that doesn't mean the shells can't shift pH significantly, even under significantly different conditions. 
says, The Coast of Maine, Walbarum's team, led by Mark Green of St. Joseph's College of Maine, mixed up old ground shells with ocean sediments and replanted them. They then looked to see how that affected the oysters. Three times as many oyster larvae settled in shell-rich soils as the non-shelled soils they found. The reason, Waldboro thinks, is because of a change in water acidity within the pores of the sediment. So, once again, the uh, water would settle, and then whenever you're separating it underground or under the dirt, it's even more of a separation, so the young ones were able to live. You have this incredibly hostile environment in the poor water, which is generally more acidic than the overlying water. Mix shell in, and it's a little less hostile. And then we have, this is uh, from January 29th, 2024. Uh, a lot of these are pretty recent. I had been wanting to do this for a long time. Let's see when this actually came out, when I wanted to do it. This came out March 10th, 2023. It was whenever I was first wanting to do this episode. But uh, now we have more information on it. So I'm kind of glad that I didn't, because now we have more to talk about. Shallow seawater chemistry may make reefs more resistant to ocean acidification. As carbon emissions increase, increases, the ocean absorbs more carbon dioxide. This causes a chain of chemical reactions that results in a formation of carbonic acid and overall ocean acidification. The excess hydrogen ions associated with ocean acidification can threaten coral reefs in two ways. The ions can break up the calcium carbonate of the coral exoskeletons, and they can bond with carbon ions, leaving less material for corals. So that's like the sciencey version of how this works. At smaller scales and shallower areas, however, local variations in the chemistry of the seawater may either exacerbate or mitigate the effects of ocean acidification on reefs. So this is saying it's like individualized. So we should probably really go and study uh, all of these different locations to see what chemistry is going on so we understand so we can know how to fix it. That the people earlier from the March 2023 article were saying that they wanted more science before we did it to make sure that it's not going to hurt anything. And that's perfectly reasonable and here we are talking about more science and they're saying we need more science so we just need more science need more people looking at this stuff because carbonate chemistry can vary widely by location and season it can be difficult to parse out just how it impacts the ecosystem now research from palacio castro sheds new light on an intertwined effects of local carb carbonate chemistry and ocean acidification on coral reefs off the coast of Florida. The researchers analyzed the carbonate chemistry of seawater collected at 38 different locations. They found that seawater acidity increased in most of the reefs between 2015 and 2021, specifically in reefs located somewhat deeper and farther from shore. In shallower inshore reefs, however, carbonate chemistry dynamics often counteract, counteracted acidification. Inshore reefs had the most seasonal variation in carbonate chemistry, with periods of both exacerbated and mitigated acidification. 
inshore reefs often coexist with seagrass beds, and the new findings align with prior research suggesting that effects on seagrass on carbonate chemistry could help protect reefs from acidification. The analysis also revealed spatial variations with reefs in the upper and middle Florida Keys. Having less acidic water than lower keys, this suggests upper and middle keys may have better conditions for sustaining reefs. Together, these findings deepen scientists' understanding of ocean acidification with the floral coral reef system and could help inform further research in efforts to mitigate the effects of ocean acidification both there and in similar ecosystems. And here we have a science uh, journal talking about this. The ultimate effect that the ocean acidification and warming will have on the physiology of calcifying algae is largely uncertain. Responses depend on the compl complex interaction between seawater chemistry and global-slash-local stressors and species-specific physiologies. There is a significant gap regarding the effect that metabolic interactions between coexisting species may have on local seawater chemistry and the concurrent effect of ocean acidification. We tested whether or not seagrass presence can influence the calcification rate of widespread and abundant species of Hamaldidia. I'm not sure. I think that's a... Oh, that's a seagrass, it says. Or no, it's an algae. Excuse me. Our results demonstrate that under elevated CO2, the high photosynthetic rates of H. Ridi contribute to a raise of H. Cunieta calcification more than twofold, and thus we suggest H. Cunieta populations coexisting with H. Ridi population may have a higher resilience to ocean acidification condition. This conclusion reports the more general hypothesis that in coastal and shallow reef environments, the metabolic interaction between calcifying and non-calcifying organisms are instrumental in providing safe refuge against ocean acidification effects and increasing resilience of the more ocean acid acidification susceptible species. So, it's saying that there's a link between the animals that are affected and are not affected and they need each other and they work together better together. And here we have something else that I had highlighted later on, short-term mesocosm experiments that stimulate rapid heat waves and acidification as observed in different regions are fundamental tools to predict complex ecosystem interactions. So that's an idea of something that we need to look into. Short-term experiments to stimulate heat waves and acidification in different regions so that we know what is going on. This is like an idea of some experiments that we should do. It is also necessary to introduce realism in these simulations by representing the high-frequency semi-diurnal or diurnal, semi-diurnal or diurnal variability that dominates coastal or shallow environments. I'm not really sure what that word means. Let's look it up. So it says that semi diurnal is occurring twice a day and then diurnal is of during the day or at least once a day 
I've never heard of that term before, but now we know. And here we have the flip side. So we've had like multiple uh, studies that have been talking about how seagrass helps um, acidification or helps prevent acidification. Well, here we have one that is uh, hidden cost of pH variability in seagrass beds on marine calcifiers under ocean acidification. And I'm pretty sure this one is pretty recent. I'm pre I think it was last month is whenever this came out, sometime in January. However, the role of the variability in relevant carbonate chemistry parameters as a driver is often overlooked. For example, the balance between photosynthesis and respiration over the day-night cycle is leading to a high pH carbon dioxide variability in seagrass beds. So we actually just looked up the diurnal and semi-diurnal thing. That's what it was talking about. That at night, the animals are not protected by the seagrass because of the respiration of the seagrass. That at night, the it's not as uh, protected. So my hypothesis would be that if they're going to be affected at night, then we should go in and, and do our dumping at night. If we're going to be dumping this carbonate, we should do it at whenever they need it the most. Uh, so that's just an idea. But it says here that, yeah, that these other journals, entries of the scientists in the past that not all of them had talked about the day-night cycle as thoroughly as they should is what this one that was like a month ago saying so the day-night is uh here there's a picture right here if anybody wants to go and check it out oh wow <laughs> uh here we go and the picture shows that during the day, the oxygen goes up and the pH goes up. And then at night, the CO2 goes up and the pH goes down. Which, okay, the pH going down means that the, the acidity is rising. So, uh, lower pH is, is, means a higher acidity. So, yeah, it's getting more acidic at night. So we would need to do the dumping at night. That's just my hypothesis on that. I hope that um, this kind of made you guys think there's, it's not all doom and gloom. Like we have really simple techniques that we can affect the inner, the, the earth and ocean with. The ocean is really needing our help and we can do it. So yeah, we should get more people involved in this and uh, make more people aware that we have technology to take the carbon out of the atmosphere to save the atmosphere and put the carbon in the ocean to save the ocean. We can save both the atmosphere and the ocean at the same time with this technology. We just need everybody to do it. And we can make fertilizer with it. I, if you remember that part. So we can even make like businesses and stuff off of this if you wanted to. All right, guys, be safe out there.
There's something 